A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. You've probably all heard of Oskar Schindler, the German businessman who saved the lives of 1,200 Jews in the Nazi German Empire. He risked everything to do so. His story is so well known, of course, because he's the eponymous star of the magnificent Steven Spielberg film, Schindler's List. But you may not have heard of Nicholas Winton, Nicky Winton a man who some people call the British Schindler, because he also saved the lives of Jews on the eve of the Second World War. 669 Jewish children who would almost certainly have otherwise perished in the Holocaust. I was lucky enough to meet Nicky back in, way back in 2010, I think it was. He was over 100 at the time. He looked pretty good for a man in his 11th decade. I always remember pulling up at the gates in this very quiet, little leafy, sort of commuter town, commuter village to the west of London. And for some reason, it just didn't seem like a place where someone of that importance and that magnitude would have lived. It was so modest. We crunched up the short gravel drive and there was this perfect 1960s bungalow and it was all glass on the outside. It's quite unusual for the UK, that style of building. The man himself came to the door Nicholas Winton let us in, and he even helped us a bit as we hauled our film equipment into his living room. I was very young at the time, and I was rushing around the country making short history films to the BBC, and I was you know, doing things like crawling through Bronze Age tunnels in copper mines in North Wales. I was diving on shipwrecks. But I definitely found that the thing I enjoyed most was meeting veterans of history, meeting the people who had seen and shaped the events of the past that were the stuff of legends. And Nicholas Winton is among the most memorable of all the people that I've met. I'll never really forget it. We had a cup of tea and then we interviewed him. We all sat in big sort of brown leather, comfy furniture that was having one of his cyclical moments of cool, despite being probably about 40 years old at that point. And he told me his story. He was so modest, always doing down his own role. He was so generous to spend all that time taking me as sort of a young fool back to the 1930s. He described a time of hatred and great power rivalry, which now seems all the more poignant. And he told me his story, and he told me what he'd done. He was the linchpin in the rescue of hundreds of Jewish kids from Nazi-occupied Europe. In the vast majority of cases, every single member of the rest of their families was murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. And the strange thing, he did it as a private citizen. He just had the help of mates, friends, and family. 
it had been 1938 and Winton had been planning to go on a skiing vacation, nice holiday to Switzerland. And in the end, he decided to cancel his trip and help with the refugee crisis caused by the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia following Munich when the Brits and the French effectively sold out the people of Czechoslovakia to Hitler. He occupied swathes of the country. And that put the Jewish populations there at huge risk. And Winton just set up this operation to rescue children at risk of persecution. He arranged their transportation to safety in Britain on trains. And Winton managed to find foster families for the kids. He organised, I think it was eight trains in all from Prague to London between March and August 1939. A final train at the very beginning of September 1939 was halted because Britain and Germany went to war. It's young passengers lost their last best chance of escaping Hitler's clutches. He told me this draw-dropping story, and I think the most important lesson in it was the reminder that we as individuals feel powerless and isolated and insignificant, but we can do extraordinary things when confronted with monstrous evil, if we choose to do so. And he wasn't really rewarded for that work. It went largely unnoticed until quite late in the 20th century, when he appeared on a now legendary BBC TV show surrounded by an audience of men and women who'd once been the children that he'd brought to the UK, that he'd helped to save. And he was knighted by the late Queen Elizabeth before he died at 106 years old in 2015. And now there is a movie out called One Life that tells his story. Anthony Hopkins plays the old Nicholas Winston and Johnny Flynn plays his younger self. Also in this episode, you're going to hear from Helena Bonham Carter, the national treasure, the living legend. She is also in One Life. She plays Babby Winton, Nikki's mother. She has her own extraordinary family history of helping Jews escape the Nazis in the Second World War, which is so clearly connected to her One Life film project. It really made for an interesting discussion. So when they approached me for One Life, James, well, you've got to do it. It's in your DNA. And I said, I know it's in my DNA, but the part's kind of not exactly huge. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of a big deal. And I don't think but then I thought, I've got to do it. You know, there's just no question. It is in my DNA. Also, I wanted to be, um, uh, I love the company, being Johnny's mum, being Hopkins' mum. Um, but there must have made the part bigger for you, because I watched it and I thought you had a big part. That you were just sucking up. No. I think it's a bit like when... <laughs> Um, Julie Dench was in the Queen Elizabeth film, and you think that she's in the whole yeah, film, and she's in for like two seconds. Maybe it's just because Bab- Babby, the person I was playing, she was such a force. She was an amazing yeah, woman. Amazing. And I think within the story, I, I did think this is an unusual relationship, a mother, a really dynamic mother-son relationship. You don't often have teens yes, of that's people true. who really work well together. You can get the archetypal Jewish mom who's like making sure they're fed and they smother the... Some, but they were really good team. And, and, they well, were clean. and they're, they're a partnership. And also he has, doesn't have mother issues. He's not like, oh, I just want to make mummy. So yeah, you're not... It's it, not, not it, at it's, all about the mother. He knows exactly, that she's the one she's who's going to help it. She's just a really... She's the buddy and she's going to be efficient and she's yeah. also going to get things done. And then you... There's the scene that is so powerful because it has another layer of complexity is that she herself immigrate, came to Britain, yeah. right? And then you have that unbelievable speech where you talk to the civil servant and you say... I'm British and I've embraced Britishness and I've come to understand this country as the following. Yeah. And you give this really rather beautiful celebration of Britain. Well, I'm sort of pointing out to him that I came here and I was celebrating the British ideals. I think she's also flattering him of kindness and decency and respect for other people and pointing out to him that he is in a position of power. All he has to do is take responsibility. 
you, you get there. You, you were, you're formidable. Well, I basically became my grandmother, my great-grandmother. In fact, both of them. Well, no, yes, let's go on to the other one. <laughs> both Sorry. of them. Because also, I am literally, because I come from an Austrian-Jewish background on one side and very British on the other. So my great-granny, when I started, because I'm, she was Austrian, so I wasn't quite German. Babette was German. She came to England in 1908, seven. She'd lived through a First World War being German. You have to be strong to be able to do that. They were called Wertheim until 37, yes, 38. Yeah. Um, thought we couldn't, we can't just go through another war, war with a German name. Uh, but they were assimilated. And they were also Jewish, but they didn't identify so much as Jewish. Not because they were ashamed, but they were desperate to fit in. Um, and is that true of your ancestry as well? We're working on two levels here. We're my ancestry are so completely bonkers. Yeah. Everyone seemed to convert for different reasons to Catholicism. Okay. Don't even ask. Okay. I mean, they are really seriously neurotic. Right. 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 <laughs> but Thank so my, became an actor. Yeah. But <laughs> so what is neurosis. useful is that, you know, great granny came through. As soon as I did this, the accent, my great grandmother, my... Um, Auntie Lily, Auntie Paul, they're basically all of them, they popped up. Well, and that's why you've got the arrow, because they were, they were, you they were, were going, you better them. do it. Yeah. That, what happens when you play a part where you definitely hope that your ancestors were not like that? Does that require acting skill? And, and, and does it, yeah, are you always channeling somebody? No, I'm, I'm definitely not. No, I'm definitely not doing everything for my family. Uh, no, I try and do something. It's always chemistry. It's like meeting someone. You go like, okay, I'm going to get on with you or I'm going to understand you. And for me anyway, the whole thing was the story. And and why does Nicholas Winton, what was it? What made him do what he did? And of course, I thought, well, I am the mother. Obviously, I'm really responsible for a lot of, <laughs> for yes. a lot of why did, was this man capable of what he did? I think that was kind of my cog. It was like, okay, I'm the mother. There's no father, quite interestingly. And you go like, what makes this man a hero? Why aren't there millions of Nicholas But you Winters? also had that thing that as a parent is very relatable, which is he says, well, you made me like this, mum. I'm going on for this mad, hopeless journey to try and rescue children from the Nazis. Yeah. And you're like, all right. And then he goes, well, what did you expect? when you, You're this formidable yeah, yeah, person. Yeah. You raised me like this. And I feel like that when my daughter goes and like jumps off a cliff, I'm like, I'm really regretting that was a bad role be... modelling. Well, no, it's no, I'm sort of, I made to try and be outdoors of and course, exciting. And now she's then, taking it away and I'm like, well, yeah. actually, don't do that much. And, and I thought that was interesting. No, the vulnerability of being a parent, no one knows it until you have it. So it's like having your heart ripped out and just walking around. <sighs> and we can't... It's okay if we jump off a cliff. Oh, yeah, it's fine. I mean, you know, Dirty parachute girl. or whatever you, the fun, whatever you do <laughs> for fun. But it is... Yeah, she's caught. She's like, she's so proud of what he's doing. Yeah. But at the same time, she's terrified because he's going into the eye of the storm and he's Jewish. Please go and watch the brilliant retelling of Nikki's story in One Life in cinemas. And if you want to hear more of my slightly bonkers, and I think people would call it wide-ranging interview with Helena Bonham Carter, you can do so over at the History Hit YouTube channel. I love the film. I thought it was brilliant. And it got me thinking about meeting Sir Nicholas Winton and also thinking about the kinder transport in general, this kinder transport project. So I wanted to share this episode of History Hit with you. I recorded it a few years back at Gurick Castle in North Wales. And there I met Herman Rothman and Henry Glantz. They were two survivors of the kinder transport, two young boys who were brought to Britain and have made a life here. 
They told me their story about escaping from the anti-Semitic Nazis. And they were housed at this big, rambling castle in North Wales until homes and families could be found for them. Here's the story of the Kinder Transport, told by survivors Herman and Henry. Enjoy. Minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black, white unity till there is first and black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And lift off, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Uh, My name is Herman Rothman. Herman, how old were you when you left Germany? About 15, 14 or 15. And why did you leave? Well, uh, I think that seems to be obvious. Judaism was made non-existence in in Germany. And um, my father was in a concentration camp in Sachsenhausen for about eight months. And how he survived is a miracle because purely he had a very good friend who was a German police officer. And he managed eventually to get him out of concentration camp. But it took some time. And, and what do you remember about growing up? Were you in Berlin? No, I, I went one week before the war broke out. I went to England. There was an organization who encouraged people to come to England first, stay there, and then eventually go to Palestine or later on Israel. What do you remember about growing up in Nazi Germany? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. But I, I, I was very, very fortunate I went to Jewish school. Where there was Hebrew was part of the subject and, and, and so on. My family were religious, and I sang in the choir in the old synagogue in Berlin. Unfortunately, the synagogue was destroyed and, uh, by, by British <laughs> bombs <laughs> in 1943, so I've been told. Were you aware of the hostility and discrimination towards your, your fellow Jewish people in Germany? Yes, and also personally. You see, my father, we had a, we had a car, for example, yes? And in, in 1934, I think, yes, I think the first time I heard when Jews had to be very, very careful. If there was an accident, the Jewish were the people who caused it. And um, my father, in 1934, he, uh, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish with the, with the, with the car, because whenever anything happens, my, I will be accused. And, and then eventually, I think in, in, in 37, 36, 37, he sold it and finished. But there is there's still in, in the book which I have, of course, my father and proudly sitting in front of his car. Now, he, he served incidentally in the, in the Austrian army in the 1418 war. And from time to time, my parents told me our life was, was, was before the Hitler regime. Yes. When there was life possible in Germany, for example, in, independent. And they had a, had a fairly good business. But eventually, as I say, he was put in a concentration camp. How did you manage to get on the kinder transport, on that train going to Britain? How did I come to do it? I don't know. I mean, my, my, it was an arrangement for my parents, for example, they arranged for Jewish children to get out of Germany as quickly as possible and eventually go to what was then Palestine, very important. 
And but you ended up here in North Wales. I landed in North Wales. I went in Russia. Been this 160, 180 children, boys and girls from ages of of about 14 years to 17 years. But the big brigade bulk was about 15 years. 15 years. Landed up in the, in the British Army. Tell me briefly about Gurick Castle, where we are now, overlooking the sea in Conway. It must have been a strange place to come to. Yes, but I, I was very, very fortunate. If you played a, an instrument, uh, you had a group of people who were either singers or played the violin or played an instrument. And, and what I did is I occupied myself in forming an orchestra to entertain the children or the young people. Being occupied with that took my mind away from many other things. It was, in actual fact, for my benefit that I've, I, I formed this music group. Yes, and we had, for example, the uh, uh, people who got married <laughs> used our music. And uh, that's how I occupied myself. And at least I never forgot my parents, of course, yes. I was always worried about them, but it made it a bit easier to have a uh, to have a cultural life, and that I I I formed in in in, in uh, Castle. And then you came of age, if you like, and joined the British Army. How did that come about? Well, I wanted to do something for 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 war. My father was a, a soldier and was an officer in, in the fourteen eighteen war. And he spoke all very nicely about life in the army. And uh, so I volunteered, but also not forgetting that I was doing something for what whatever little one can do to help the outcome of the war. And what I, what I did is I did uh, my little bit. Tell me about your little bit. Well, I, I, I volunteered for the British Army, but I, I was transferred to the Intelligence Corps and I became an interrogator. And there were four of us who interrogated high-ranking Germans and so on, and, and, and we found Hitler's will. And I translated part of Hitler's will into English. <laughs> well, there's a lot. Hang on, there's a lot to unpack there. Tell me about, some of, first of all, some of the high-ranking Nazi regime officials that you interrogated. That must have been extraordinary. I don't think it was so extraordinary because I did my job. My job was to interrogate them, to find out how communicated with life things, especially with anti-Semitism, yes? And uh, I, I did this for quite some time. I, I, I was transferred to, the, as I said before, to intelligence corps because I spoke English quite well before I had been turned out at school. And also I spoke a bit about French, which they taught me again at school. Um, it made it easier for me to communicate with people who were not British. Do you remember any of the individuals in particular that you interviewed? Oh, yes, uh, quite, quite, uh, quite a lot. And, and, and I, 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 I published a book, Hitler's Will, because we've, uh, I was woken up in, at, at four o'clock in the morning on one Monday and the officer told us, come into the office right away. So I thought he was crazy. What, four o'clock in the morning, I should come to the office. What could be so important? Yes. And um, 
I thought to myself, I'd take my time. I had my breakfast, <laughs> and eventually, right, it came in, in, into the office at six o'clock. Or, no, no, six or seven o'clock, I can't remember time. And he said, translate that. And I translated it, and it was a document, and I found that the people we interrogated had something in their pocket. And we ripped up their pockets, and we found Hitler's will and Goebbels' attendum to Hitler's will. Yes. And then uh, that made our fame. What was in that document? The document was, first of all, in, in two parts. One part, which Hitler wrote, where he said the reason why he's going to commit suicide and all the rest of it, and then also Goebbels' addendum. He wrote, the Führer is going to commit suicide, and I'm going to follow him, and that was it. And then, of course, they shot themselves. <laughs> but uh, it, it was... Uh, in uh, Somebody kept his will. He didn't want to give it to the public. And, but when he was searched, they found two documents. They didn't know exactly what it was. So they called us and had a look, have a look at the documents. And we found Hitler's will. What, what, did you, what were you thinking as you were translating this? I'm doing my job. And my, what I imagined Hitler was like was confirmed by the contents of the will. Yes? The hate for people the dislike for people, and that he tried to do the best for his people. And uh, the element, of course, the, the, the Jew, Jewish people are behind everything, yes. But uh, that's, uh, the translation did, did not cause a revolution because we knew what it was like. We knew what, what Goebbels was like. A, a man who can kill his, his wife and the children like Goebbels did. And there's no comments. You can imagine if a man can do this for an idea, for something. But that's, that's in, in line with the, the national socialism. Yes. You must give everything. What for? What was it like as a, as a German Jew returning to Berlin in 1945? What did you see and hear? Nothing extraordinary. You meet Germans, even though the lower end of Germans. You meet people who served the National Socialist Party. They were a little bit higher. You think nobody could be in in that line of Hitler and, 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 and Goebbels. They were the top Nazis, yes? They were completely different from anybody. They were, the full idea which they had, yes? was amazing that even though they committed suicide, they still thought in terms of ruining other people, having this terrible, terrible, disgraceful thing of killing innocent people. Because what they did is, yes, in 1418 war, you went because your country needs you, yes? But... In this war, you could live without Germany, with, with, with Nazis, yes? The most important thing really is to live. People have the right to live, independent of, of, of what they think politically 
whether they want to be socialist or not socialist or, or Germans, that's a secondary. The most important thing is life. And we owe people not only to yourself, but to other people to be alive. And that was forgotten. <clears throat> what do you remember about interrogating those high-ranking Germans? There were some snobs there <laughs> who felt that I wasn't high enough to be into interrogating him. So he said to me, after all, I'm, I'm, I'm a general. I want to be in interrogated by a general. I said, I tell you what, I take the things off, now you're equal. And I took his things and drifted off and said, now we're equals. Very, very simply done. <laughs> you took a few ranks off him. Yeah. Yes. And what did you learn from those generals? Were, were they trying to excuse what had happened or, 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 or did, were you struck by how committed they were to the cause? I think there is an urge in human beings to be better and to be somebody, to feel you are someone who's respected and, and so on. It's, it's a, it's a psych, psychiatrists can explain it far better than I can. And, and there are some people who are elated to be, perhaps in life, they had an ordinary life, but because of national socialism, they were elated to a higher rank. And that is so very common, really, amongst Germans. Not so much with British people and, and, and other people, normal people. But you see, Hitler used that as an, uh, of, of, of importance and gave some of the who are just ordinary people a rank and a rank far above themselves. And that is, is so, so typical a German very often. You don't find amongst... The, uh, I don't say it because I'm, I'm now British and on the rescue and I want to deprecate what the Germans do, but it was very common in Germany. And I think also led to the success of Hitler. These men you were interviewing, yes. were they aware of the evilness of the regime they were serving or were they trying to make excuses? I have, if, if I can say, get the impression that they liked it because if you give somebody a rank who was an ordinary person, there is something which he feels elated by it. Maybe it's, it's a wrong adjective. But I found it's common in German. So they were unrepentant, these senior German commanders? Yes, yes, yes. What was Berlin like in 1945? It's difficult to find words to explain how, A, how they feel. How, how the Germans felt being defeated on the rest of it. I think if one can generalize that, you feel that they did feel hurt. A lot of Germans felt hurt. They had for years been something, somebody, and then reduced to an ordinary status. Yes? I'm looking from a psychological point of view. But the city must have been a ruin, was it? It, it was in ruin, yes. And, and for example, when I've looked for 
where my father and my mother lived. Yes, and I, I had to walk. There was no transport and so on to take me there. And I walked quite a bit. And I, I felt very, 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 very sad. I, well, I, I don't want, want, to, want to say that. It's, it's humanity being reduced to nothing. That's how the Germans felt. They were felt elated under Hitler. They were the Herrenvolk. What happened to the Herrenvolk? Ordinary people had nothing. Yes, it was reducing a person from a different status to a lower status. Maybe that's how I can uh, the only did to describe it. And was it sad for you to see the city of your childhood in rubble? Or did you think they deserved it? You, you see, the rubbles are nothing to me, yes? They have ornaments or something where you live on things like that. It's the people who matter. When you take a man who was respected and was somebody elated, you find him gone to nothing. And his future, nobody knew what's going to be the future of the German people. I'm talking about immediately after the war finished. It's difficult to try, a psychiatrist can explain that. If you are being elated far above your normal things and, and then reduced to almost nothing, yes, it must be hard for people to bear. Maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating it, but that's how, how the Germans felt. Particularly, but the Soviet occupation must have been brutal as well. Uh, who can really tell? If you don't live that sort of life, yes? I mean, how can I put myself in, into these Germans? From, my, from an educational point of view, there were some very rational, some, some people I in, uh, uh, interrogated, they took the rational attitude. Yes, it was part and parcel of life. You, uh, you, you sometimes say hi, then if you've lost, you have to accept it. The acceptance of the new status, from an elated status to ordinary ones. Well, so what? I have to make the best of it. Yeah, quite a lot of field that says others are, are still living in this, in the previous status. They don't want to give it up. Listening to Dan Snow's history, talking about Nicholas Winton, the kinder transport, hearing from survivors, and from Helena Bonham Carter. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. What's your full name? Henry Glantz. C-L-N-Z. It's German for splendor. <laughs> when did you first realise that all was not well for you and your community in, in 1930s well, Germany? Well, but in 19, 1933, when Hitler came to power, but a lot, unfortunately, a lot of Jews thought he won't last very long, then there was a chance to emigrate. But later on, nobody wanted us. It was, became difficult. And when, when did you first experience uh, discrimination? All, all, the, all the time for the boy. The boys were encouraged to... So I'd be beaten up or insulted all the time. It was a rather rough time. So walking down the street became a dangerous thing for you to do? Yes. I remember once when we came here, after a few weeks, we went, four of us went for a walk in uh, Abergelly, and we looked at some shop windows and a copper came towards us. So there was two boys ran away. The copper chased them naturally, caught one of them. So I, I could speak fluent English when I came here. I'd learned for four and a half years in Germany. So I was the interpreter. Said, Why did the boy run away? So I was telling him when a policeman approaches Jewish children in Germany, it means trouble. So he nearly, he had to, almost, it was near tears. He said, tell him he's not in Germany. Here, a policeman is your friend. And he had to policemen come here a few weeks or two later with tea and cakes and talked about the police, about the British police. He said, he said if, you're, if you're in trouble, you look for a policeman, you don't run away from him. <laughs> and so you, you, you were growing up in Germany, you were a child, and you were aware, you were aware that it was a, a dangerous time you have been... That must have been... Well, a, I, was seven, I, was, I, I was eight years old when the Nazis came to power. But uh, I remember we lived in Kiel Square where the, the, the communists and the Nazis used their fights together. How did you manage to get out of Germany? Oh, we organised a lot of children, about a thousand Jewish children who were supposed to go to Palestine had their visa cancelled. So we were allowed to come to Britain instead on the, on the kinder transport. We were interviewed by people whether we were suitable. So I was, uh, well, I was 14 at the time and I was 15 when I left. I was, I was 15 in May and we arrived here on the 1st of September. So you waved goodbye to your parents... My father went to Belgium. You heard of the Kristallnacht. During the Kristallnacht, we didn't know that. They only started with German Jews, not we were Polish citizens. I don't know whether I mentioned I was born in Poland, but I don't remember Poland. I was two years old. My parents took me to Germany. And what happened in Kristallnacht? 
it, well, the, um, a lot of synagogues were destroyed. People, uh, quite a few people were murdered. People were arrest, arrested, sent to concentration camps. But they didn't touch foreign Jews at the time. But your father said, right, I'm out of here anyway. No, my, my, the, the, later on, all Polish Jews had to leave Germany within 72 hours. Oh, soon after Kristallnacht, a lot of Polish Jews were deported from Germany. But we came, by the time we got there, the Poles crossed the border, didn't let anybody come back. So we had to go back to Kiel. When you waved goodbye to your family in 1939, what were you feeling? I don't recall. It was um, very sad. And uh, I hoped, I asked how soon they would come. We didn't. We knew the situation was dangerous, but we didn't actually know that there was going to be a war. Thought maybe there'd be another agreement like in Munich, where they gave in to Hitler. But uh, this time he overdid it. My mother and my brother came to my sister already gone to gone to a week before me. She stayed in North London in a hostel, and they sent us here the week after. So you said goodbye to your mother and your brother in Kiel. We were not allowed to go onto the station, onto the platform. They had to say goodbye in, in, in the fork in, in the station itself. And did you ever see them again? Uh, no. No, I didn't. I found out that they didn't live anymore. After, after the war, I, w- I worked for the American Army as supposed to censor. And near there, in, in, in Munich, near there's a place called Bamberg, which was what's called Displaced Person Camp, where the survivors lived. And I, met, I found some distant relatives of mine. And they were telling me that my mother and my brother were murdered in a place called one of the camps called Maidenek. But actually, I thought it was Belsitz, another one, not, not to be confused with Belsen. And, well, I had permission to go to the Russian zone. I went to, the, to Leipzig, where they were interned in the beginning. I spoke to the Russian colonel, and he told me, he looked at the documents, that it was in, they were murdered in Belsitz. But after the reunification of Germany, they found other documents that it was Maidenek. But it doesn't make any difference where. And when you came to Britain, what happened to you? Well, we, went, uh, we arrived in Harwich the, on the 1st of September. We stayed there about two, about two hours or three. We had a train to London, to Paddington. No, Liverpool Street. And Liverpool Street, we had a cabs to take us to Paddington. We came here. And on the early in the morning of the 2nd of September, that was, that it was no bed, so yeah, we slept in store beds for a couple of days. Now, I had no electric lights, all paraffin lamps, no WCs. <laughs> so you, you left Germany just as war was breaking out? As far as I know, I was, we were the last kind of transport to leave Germany. I read in a German newspaper years later that a train arrived from Vienna with 120 children and the Germans didn't let them through and they were all murdered. And that was the train after yours? One one had arrived 10 hours after the invasion. And you were a few hours before the invasion? Five hours. We crossed around midnight into Dorland and uh, the invasion was at 5 o'clock in the morning. So you were the last group of Jewish children to leave the Third Reich? As as far as I know. So you came into Gurik Castle. When you pulled up to this... Giant fake medieval castle in North Wales. Yeah, we came late at night. It was dark. People were some store bags. So we had to sleep on the store. We didn't have any beds for two or three days. And then the Quakers so provided us with furniture thing. No electric lights, all paraffin lamps. No, but no WCC, old-fashioned toilets. And uh, then we came up in the morning. It was a glorious day. That was the 3rd of September. And that's when actually Britain declared war. 
And you found yourself in a fake medieval castle for the next yes. few months. Yeah, it was, it was quite exciting. Had this beautiful view here. Well, had we learned my history lesson down there, we thought Wales was was part of England. We learned soon afterwards, and we worked for the local farmers. Some of, some of us, and we found we got away got away with murder. If he spoke to them in Welsh, <laughs> so we learned as much Welsh as we could. But actually, my daughter knows Welsh, but from South Wales, not a Welsh speaking area. She doesn't know it. I know a little bit of Welsh. She does. I forgot most of it. <laughs> then you ended up in London eventually. I went to. And I forgot now when it was. I think it must have been about April 41. The Lord Don Donald, the Irish Lord who, who owned this castle, wanted it back. He let it up to the refugee organisation, I understand, free of charge. But he wanted it back for some reason. So we, we went to three different uh, farms. I, I didn't see my sister for nearly two years, so I wanted to get to London. So I was on my own. All they did for me was farm me. I said I only had enough fair money to go as far as Birmingham. So they found me a hostel in Birmingham. I worked there for three months, clearing bombed houses. And uh, after three months, I had saved up enough money to go to London. They found the refugee organization, found me a place in London, Wilsdon. Have you heard heard about a book that was published called The Children of Wilsdon Lane? Was the, one, of the, one of the girls called Lisa Jura from Vienna became a famous pianist in America. A cousin of mine in America sent me that book, not knowing that I was one of the children of Wilson Lane. Now, about a couple of years ago, there was um, the daughter, Sonia, she was about a year older than me, performed playing the part of her mother. And then my son took me there and listened to it, and I spoke to her. And actually, I was a friend of her, young, her younger sister, Sonia. We used to cycle to Hampstead Heath. And she actually was not a girlfriend, she was just a good friend. And uh, so I, must, I was about 18, she was 17. And uh, she, used to, she taught me how to do the tango. And she taught me to dance. So actually, I love dancing. Unfortunately, when my, my authorities have to take two tramadols to us before. And I have to be careful not to do too many fancy steps because I can't afford to lose my balance. It's so the tramadol's dancing. After an hour, it comes back with a vengeance, but it's worth it. The tramadol dancing, great. And then you married an East End girl and, and spent the rest of your life in the East End? My uncle was interned. You know, they interned Jewish refugees from any, um, they interned Jewish refugees from Germany and Austria. Hitler sent uh, spies over posing as Jewish refugees. So they interned her. Now, my uncle was born in Poland, the same town as a little town called Julinia. He was born in Julinia. It was Austria-Hungary. He was an enemy alien. They interned him. I was born in Julinia, Poland. I was a friendly alien, so I wasn't interned. Now, he was sent to Australia. And the Australians expected dangerous Nazis. There was a big joke there. Apparently, they released him after a couple of... Have you heard of the Donera? Donera boy. He went on a ship called the Donera. So my uncle wrote us at the end of the war... I suggest you try to come to Australia after the war. It's a lovely country. So my sister and I agreed. Now, I came back from Germany, and she had her visa to go. So I suggested to my sister, you go by yourself, and I'll follow you probably four months or six months. No point you waiting for me here. She was halfway to Australia when her friend got married, so they invited me instead, and that's where I met my wife. And uh, I was lucky. I danced with her. And I said, come to pictures afterwards. He said, I can't. I'm meeting my boyfriend afterwards. He's invited to a bar mitzvah. He said, phone him up. Tell me your mum had a bit much, too much to drink. You had to take her home. <laughs> so she did that. And for 
about six weeks. She had two boyfriends, only I had the advantage over Sid. <laughs> I knew about him, he didn't know about me. And after, after about six, eight weeks, I felt sure enough, I said, you make up your mind. You either dump me or you dump Sid. So she dumped Sid. The advantage I had was her mother liked me. She didn't like Sid. And you were better at dancing. Really, I was quite a good dancer when I was young. So, no, we danced there and we never stopped dancing. And she was a good dancer until she had a lot of medical conditions. She looked, called herself the bionic woman, but she died 18 months ago. And how, so how many years were you married? 67. Wonderful. And she, with all her medical conditions, she lived to be. We got married on her 23rd birthday and uh, we were married for 67 years, but she lived to be 90. After I met her six weeks later or so, I got my visa for Australia. And she said, too far for mum. We were talking about it on and off to go, but I had to choose between her and Australia. 30 years later, we were invited to my nephew's wedding. So uh, she was sorry she didn't, didn't go, but she told me once down there, you should have called my bluff. I would have come if you'd gone by yourself. What lessons do you draw from the fact that you survived such early trauma, that your family were murdered, and, and yet you seem... Your life carries on. It's, uh, it's very, very sad, of course, especially, especially I was said, it was such a long time before I found out what happened to them. And uh, you have to carry on living. Why I'm still here, I don't know. <laughs> of course, I mean, uh, when I was a boy, schoolboy, I was wondering, would I see the year 2000, where I was 74 and a half, which in those days was a nice, good life expectancy. But I never thought I'd, I'd live to 94. No, if I'm here for another two years, I'll have my third bar mitzvah. You know, a boy at 13 gets maturity because bar mitzvah. And in the Bible, the... It says allocated lifespan is two scores plus 10, 70 years. So at 70, you have your, you, at 70, 70 years, you, you start a new life. So at 83, you have your second bar which I had. And at 96, the third one. And uh, then 109, your fourth one. <laughs> well, I'll come and interview on your 109th birthday. Well, if, I, if I'm still here in two years, I'll have my, my third one. And it's already arranged. You heard of Bevis Mark Synagogue in the morning. I go there regularly. Now, when I was interviewed by Prince, when I spoke to Prince Shah about four minutes at St. James's Palace, so I said, I met your Royal Highness at uh, Bevis Mark Synagogue. So, yes, uh, what a beautiful synagogue. And then what did he say about the East End? Oh, yeah, he, he said, uh, he asked me where I live now. He said, in the East End of London. So he said, I love the East End. It's, uh, I don't know why people degrade it. So I mentioned it in our club, and one of the old girls said, uh, why the bloody hell doesn't he live here? Excuse <laughs> my language. I'd be quoting. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.